Well, the deacons have given me five, count them, five bottles of water here. I don't know, I don't know what to make of that. Anyway, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we saw the call of Samuel and the dawning of a new era in Israel, the speaking of a new word. And yet a strange thing happens in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel, the main character of the early part of the book, disappears from the narrative until chapter 7. He's called the ministry, then he's not present in chapter 4, 5, or 6. Before he can lead the nation in a renewal of the covenant, the old order, right, the priests of the house of Levi, as he had prophesied, must be removed. And in today's text from 1 Samuel 4, we will see that prophetic word come to its fruition. It's gruesome fruition. So we're going to make two points. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. God in a box and Ichabod. God in a box and Ichabod. So first, God in a box. So the Israelites are fighting against their perennial enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines are an eastern Mediterranean people. They migrated onto the onto the western edge of Israel, right? Uh, That's where they lived, the coastal plain of the Mediterranean. The Israelites camp for this battle at a place called Ebenezer, which means rock of help. And ironically, they're not going to get any. And the Philistines are at at a place called Aphek, which is the northwest corner of that coastal strip. This, this is about, so the battle is about 20 miles west of Shiloh, where Eli is, where the young Samuel is, and where the ark and the sanctuary remains. The Philistines defeat the Israelites in battle. They kill about 4,000 men, and the soldiers return to the camp, and they're defeated. They gather the elders, and they ask a pretty obvious question, crucial question. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? It's a wonderful question to ask. It rightly acknowledges God's sovereignty over life and death, over victory and defeat. But it's one thing, right? It's one thing to ask the right question, which is a skill and a gift in itself. But it's one thing to ask the right question. It's another thing to wait for the right answer. Or perhaps to realize there is no particular answer. One won't be given. Providence is often inscrutable. But here, they ask the right question, and they don't wait. The question is answered too quickly. Beware of people who immediately have a spiritual answer for everything. The first thing to do is get the question right and then wait for the answer. The answer here comes immediately. Let's bring the ark. So there's no, there's no repentance. 
There's no discerning process. There's no prayer recorded. There's no cry for mercy. There's no reflecting on what might be the reasons God did not act as expected. Right? These are people who have no sense of the mystery and the thickness and the complexity of God's providences that we are always and often find ourselves in situations where we're seeing through a glass darkly. They just pop out the next platitude. We lost, get the ark. There's no need for any of that. There's no need for this struggle. They know the reason we lost. Let's bring the ark of the Lord of the covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of the enemies. Now, the ark was a box. Right? Around four feet long, a little over two feet wide and about two feet high with two golden cherubim on top of it. And in verse 4 of the text, it's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And this means the Ark was a portable throne room for God. His royal presence, His glory was there in a localized, unique way. Inside was the law, the tablets of the law, reminding them of God's majesty on Sinai and their obligations to him. And of course, on top, a covering, covering of solid gold, the mercy seat, the place where the blood of atonement was sprinkled once a year by the high priest, reminding Israel that the ark is a place of reconciliation, a place of pardon. In short, this is why it's called, this is why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant means an ordered relationship with God. Right? Because here at the Ark, the covenant is upheld and maintained, and if the covenant is breached or broken, here the breaches are healed. Here the covenant God of Israel dwells in the midst of his people. And so there's a real sense, a true sense, in which we can speak of the Ark as God in a box. Or at least God on a box. But the God who dwelt in the ark, of course, was not contained there. The highest heavens cannot contain him. He's not a feature of the creation. He's infinite and transcendent, and he is not graspable or controllable. Or captured. Even in making himself present, right? Even when God is revealed, he remains unfathomable and elusive. A God who was revealed and fully understood would be an idol. You know what the, the prime illustration of this is? Jesus in the Gospels. That's a full unveiling of God. There's a lot of light and truth poured into the world there. And yet Jesus remains, for anyone with eyes to see, irreducibly mysterious in the Gospels. Unable to be cornered or grasped or captured or tamed. He is not, in the pagan sense or in the manageable sense, God in a box. Yet it seems like the Israelite leaders thought along these lines. Here's the thinking. We lost the battle. Okay, Let's bring the ark. God dwells there, and God will be with us and save us. That's a simple enough fix. 
Right? And, and we should realize that this might not appear to be crass and manipulative on the surface. This appears to be pious on the surface. This is an act of piety. It would be a natural way for them to think. Who would oppose a suggestion to bring the ark? It would be like opposing motherhood. The ark had gone out with Israel's armies before and they had prevailed. Of course this is what we should do. It worked at the Jordan. Right? It worked at Jericho. We just need a little old-time religion. We'll just go back to doing what we've traditionally done. It's a very fine line between hoping or expecting God to do what he's done in the past and being presumptuous, even superstitious, between seeking God's blessing and trying to manipulate or force his hand, right? Between lawful prayer and worship and pressuring God or twisting his arm to our own ends, right? Between serving God because deep down we expect to get stuff from him, And following Jesus, who says, follow me, because I am the truth. And here, Israel as a nation has slid over into an Indiana Jones view of the ark. As a sort of magic charm, or a guarantee of victory. This reaction to summon the ark from Shiloh, without any reflection is what one scholar called rabbit foot theology. That same scholar goes on to say they're about to get a lesson in archaeology. Get it? It's hilarious. So the point I want to make here is we can do this exact same thing with our devotionals, our meetings, our churchy activities, our calling of the ark is just the invocation of a bunch of platitudes. We can subtly view the stuff that we're called to do as harnessing God. Beloved, prominent ministries, whole cottage industries do this. Right Here, there's nine steps for X and four principles of blessing and how to do this and how to do that and three ways your church can be better at this. All of these people are handling an amazingly manageable God. People can become superstitious and generate all sorts of pious-looking activity when the God who is for us, who does make himself present, becomes something we seek to control for our own ends. You know what a good dose of, of a... A cure, if you will, an antidote to this would be huge swaths of the Psalms and the prophets and the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Revelation. You have to have a very tiny, thin Bible to have this kind of God. This is a form of power religion. How do we tap into, how do we direct the power of God? What steps must we take? What mechanical order, what technique, what formula has to be followed? 
Americans are particularly susceptible to this. And churches like ours, churches with liturgies, are far from immune to this, right? The church is full of liturgical superstitions. There are huge swaths of Christendom that view the sacraments as magic. Worship has to be done just this way. This has to go right before that and not after that. And this has to happen and that has to happen or else we won't have God's blessing. Half the time these are matters of decorum or cultural preference, not divine command. So it creeps in. Creeps in. You know, as if the word and the spirit were bound to our forms. Now, in the, in the Reformed tradition, we have a wonderful phrase, right? We call the word and the sacraments and prayer the ordinary means of grace. Right? And they're ordinary because God ordinarily uses them. But he's not bound to them. He can work above them or without them. I don't know if you've noticed, but God has swept 100 million or 150 million people into his kingdom around the world in the 20th century through the Pentecostal movement uh, without consulting any of our liturgical or theological preferences. Apparently, he did not get the right reform guys together and just converted 100 million people by the spirit in the 20th century. People that we think, oh, maybe these people are a little crazy. People in Africa, people in China, people in South and Latin America. Turns out, he can work against your forms or above your forms. He remains the infinite, ungraspable God even as we grasp him. There's a uh, PCA pastor in South Carolina named Richard Phillips, and he has a helpful illustration here. He talks about the first great awakening. So now you're, you're talking about the middle of the 18th century. 1730s, 40s, 50s. Jonathan Edwards' time in in America. It was an unexpected and a surprising thing that happened. That no one was looking for. It just accompanied prayer and a simple devotion to the preached word and had a huge impact on the colonies in the run-up to the war and the framing of the Constitution. But the second Great Awakening, decades later, in the early part of the 19th century, became very technique-driven, right? Formulas followed to get revival, tent meetings, altar calls, emotionally and psychologically manipulative tactics to show that God is really doing stuff. So this God-in-the-box temptation is not one that moderns have been or are immune to. So we get get a confirmation that Israel had this magical view of God in verse 4. The ark is brought from Shiloh. First of all, note this. The ark should not be moved apart from the whole tabernacle structure. And it should only be moved at the Lord's command. But it's worse than that if you read the text. The text says, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Apparently nobody saw any problem in this. Even though Samuel had prophesied publicly against these men and Their priesthood coming to an end. There they are with the ark. God in a box religion 
always wants the blessings of God without his holy, costly requirements. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And that covenant has been repeatedly and flagrantly violated by the priests, especially by these two. And their presence here makes a mockery of the tablets of the law which are inside the ark. They violated the first table of the law, right, when they were abusing the priestly food. And the second table of the law, when they slept with women, servant women, at the entrance of the tabernacle. But they bring the ark into the camp, and all Israel, it says, raises this great, like, ground-shaking shout. It turns out, it turns out that God in a box is really good for morale. Like allegedly holy water from the Jordan River. People get excited about it. It's very good for whipping the troops into a frenzy. And in any event, Israel's competence is restored here. They've made the right religious gesture, right? They feel good about it. And the Philistines, they hear about the arrival of the ark. And they agree with Israel's superstition. They say, now they get the history all tangled up, right? But they say, look, the ark means there's God or God's here. And and they're scared. They think that this is a dangerous God, the God of the Exodus. But notice what happens in the text, and it's important to to get this, I think. The world can easily overcome God in the box religion with all of its pretensions and all of its fraudulent claims, and it does so here. You know what the Philistines do in spite of all their fears? They just decide to double down. They say, be strong, be men, fight. Or you'll be subject to the Hebrews. So they fight. And Israel is defeated again. And there's another great slaughter. And the ark is captured. And Eli's two sons, as promised, die. So now the little God in a box theology is a little bit in trouble, right? You lost with God, and now you lost without God. So now interpret that. Yahweh and his people are defeated God in a box goes into exile. That brings me to the second point, Ichabod. So here a man runs in mourning to report the news, first to the city, then to Eli. Eli's an old man at this point. He's heavy. He sits in a chair by the side of the road. He's watching even though he's virtually blind. His heart feared, the text says, for the ark. Not enough, of course, to remove his sons from defiling it. But in that halfway piety that seems to mark Eli. This running messenger gives him the news, spares nothing, tells him the story. Israel fled, suffered heavy losses. Your two sons are dead. And the ark has been captured. And at the mention, Eli... Again, the text reminds us, old and overweight, falls backwards, breaks his neck, dies. He had fattened himself on the choicest parts of the people's offerings. And you know what Hannah said just before this, right? She said, with God, our deeds are weighed. God weighs our deeds. Eli is weighed and found heavy and thus found wanting and thus found dead. 
And his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, goes into labor. She hears this litany of horrible news. She goes into labor. She dies in childbirth. She gives birth to a boy. She names the boy Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? To which the answer is, the glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark has been captured. This dying pregnant woman has more reverence and better theology than her priest husband. So the judgment then, notice what's happened. The judgment on Eli's household has widened out to a judgment on the whole nation. As the sanctuary goes, right, as the worship of Yahweh goes, so goes the nation. There's a little play on words happening here in this section of 1 Samuel on the word glory. Glory is a word which means weighty. Eli is weighty in the wrong sense. It means thick or weighty. God is thick with mystery. That's what we mean when we say he's glorious. He is weighty. He bears down upon us. And we, for our part, must take him seriously. For we are his creatures. This is why being... Existing as a human being has such drama attached to it. Because God is your isness, your being is a weighty thing. And to not be oriented to this God, to treat him lightly, is to live a disoriented life. Israel failed to do this, right? They failed to treat God as substantial and weighty and heavy. Notice something else here. The prophetic judgment on the house of Eli, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, it did not include the capture of the ark. There was no word that said the ark would be captured, just that Eli's house would be cut off from the priesthood. But what actually happens when the judgment falls, now get this, is that God himself goes into exile, into bondage, into darkness with his sinful people. He suffers shame in their shame. He allows himself to be humiliated in their humiliation, defeated in their defeat. He overthrows their corruption by being taken captive. He enters into the judgment that he himself pronounced on Eli's house. So Phineas's wife is right, Ichabod. The glory has departed. But as, as we said, the God of Israel can't be captured or reduced to the ark. Right? He's already preparing the future glory in the calling and the forming of Samuel. So let me conclude. I want to call this conclusion from Ichabod to Emmanuel. From Ichabod to Emmanuel. So the ark is the center of this story. That's it's only right. It's the embodiment of Yahweh's glory and his presence in Israel. And the story appears to be a tragedy. And in a profound way, it is a tragedy. Right? Not just Israel, but God is humiliated. God is conquered in weakness. Both the Philistines and Israel think, both of them think, God is defeated. Where is the glory? Well, it's hidden 
Right? But in some strange way, God will vindicate his name and his honor through this humiliation. Right? Right? The whole point of these early chapters of 1 Samuel is to get to Samuel so that from Samuel you can get through Saul so that you can get to David and the monarchy. And David points us to the greater David, Jesus. So we, we are moving from Ichabod to Emmanuel. In one sense, that's a summary of the whole Old Testament. From Ichabod to Emmanuel. From glory that has departed to glory that comes. So where is the glory? Well, you know, John tells us in his gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This is why the human quest for the Ark of the Covenant is an irrelevant sideshow. Besides producing second-rate, boring movies, right? It's an irrelevant sideshow. Because Christ is the Ark presence of God. The Ark glory of God made permanent. The claim of the gospel is that the God who was in the box, the infinite God who is in and yet transcends the box, has shown his glory in the incarnate Christ. Where is the glory? John tells us again, this time from our gospel lesson. The hour of glory is the hour of the cross. Where Christ is lifted up, there he accomplishes our victory. There... On the cross is the incarnate ark of God. Humiliated, captured, trampled, vilified, delivered into the hands of his enemies, weak, crucified, despised, shamed, carried away. That is the ark in exile. There, the Ichabod written over Israel, the Ichabod written over our sins and our failures and our grief and our sorrow, is written over his cross. He takes our defeat and our judgment onto himself. So there, where it seems certain the glory has departed, there is the ark dwelling of God, afflicted in our affliction, disfigured in our disfigurement, You know, two different people this week asked me uh, what I would call hard questions. <laughs> you know, questions about what about this situation in the world? What about this person? You know, really, really difficult sorts of questions. And I said to them both, I said, look, we have answers to these. At least we have a framework, I think, for answering, coming at these questions. But I think often in answering these sorts of questions, we miss the central thing. Often these answers can be given without any reference to the cross. One of the reasons for Christianity's resilience in the world, in the face of the horrors of the world, and the unanswered questions, and the darkness into which we must unblinkingly look, one of the reasons for its persistence is the fact that the God whom we worship is in and under and at the bottom of every single horror on that cross, right? 
that we, that we don't worship a God who just gives us help from outside, who just sends down answers. Somehow, the Christian answer has this unique, infinite depth, which says, whatever you want to say about injustice and suffering and evil, the incarnate God on the cross who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is at the bottom of it. And if he is underneath it and has promised to rectify it, Christians are able to put the next step foot in front of one another. Right? We may not know all the answers to all the questions, but the God we serve was disfigured in our disfigurement, captured in our captivity, right? understands what it means to have the glory departed. And this is a uniquely vibrant thing. It doesn't mean we have all the answers. But it means we have, we have a disfigured God, an unjustly executed God, an abandoned God. A God who is at the height of his glory where no glory at all appears. Where is the glory? Well, John tells us a third time. He has, in his gospel, Jesus says, Father... I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me before the creation of the world. The exiled glory becomes exalted glory. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was pointing to. Face-to-face, communion with God, the Holy Trinity through Jesus Christ. So it turns out, That the Ichabod, which is written over the whole of human history, in all of its misery, all of its despair, all of its fragility, all of its pervasive death. Adam's Ichabod and our Ichabod and Adam. Israel's Ichabod and our personal Ichabods. They're all born by Emmanuel, who is the weighty glory of God made flesh. Right? The one who makes himself nothing. The one who strangely and bizarrely conquers by being conquered by the Roman state and the religious authorities of his own day. Take him seriously. Take him seriously. Treat him as weighty. For he has gone into exile, bearing our shame, our departed glory, that he might never leave us or forsake us, that he might bring us to glory. Glory be to Christ, the humiliated and now exalted ark of God. Amen.